0: Hello, Brooklyn. How you do? Where you Where Can I come I
1: baby just
0: Hello, Nets fans. How you doing? Russell and Fro is back with that brand new flavor in your ear, featuring Brett the Man bun Garofalo and. Carl, the talent, Jackson, miles apart, worlds together. We felt compelled to hop on and pontificate about the recent exciting Nets-related events. And I think you all know what I'm talking about. The Bulls did not, and I repeat, did not hire Kenny Atkinson to turn Zach Levine into a superstar. Instead, opting for Bradley Beal's best friend, former Florida and OKC Thunder head coach Billy Donovan, meaning that hope is still alive for the Nets to make the all-consolation prize assistant coaching staff of Jacques Vaughn and Kenny Atkinson. Make it happen, Josiah. Use the power of the cloud or some bullshit. That's enough out of me. I know who you're all tuning in to hear from. So, Carl,
1: how art thou? I thought we were gonna get Mike D'Antoni on that staff as well, and Dirk. So I, I feel like it's incomplete without without a clean sweep of all four. Ah, Mike D'Antoni, old MDMA himself. <laughs> yep, yep, that's uh, that's, that's what the, that's what the kids call him. <laughs> that's his
0: nickname. <laughs> uh, regular season ecstasy, old Mike D'Antoni. <laughs> hey now. Oh God. Can't say that. That's insulting seven, Mike D'Antoni is like insulting
1: Steve Nash. Seven seconds or something. I don't, <laughs> I don't think I know enough about ecstasy to make a joke here. <laughs> oh, well, we could find out uh, sometime. I'm a loser. Um, all right. Well, yeah, we're here to talk about uh, the Steve Nash. Now that the dust is – so our our podcast philosophy is you know, everybody else wants to be about breaking news. We're about just letting the dust sell a little bit. You know, let's 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 take a big old deep breath, maybe a, a nice sip of coffee, and then we're gonna come back with our measured reactions to the Steve Nash hire some three weeks later. Very exciting.
0: Yeah, they're about breaking news. We're about raking news. Everybody breaks stuff, makes a mess. Carl and I come in, we're the cleanup crew, we see it out in the yard, we rake it up, we put it into nice Receptacles, and then we bring it to the trash heap, and we sort it out. Right, plastics go here, glass goes over there, and that's what we're here to do today.
1: Listen, other media members, if you want to break stuff, join Limp Biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, we have to stop making late '90s references. Is there other jokes that could make me sound older? Could, could <laughs> we like get a Cure reference in here, or something oh. about? Some jangle rock. I don't know. Should we bring it back to the secret life of Alex Mack? I think we should. I think we should. Um, no, let's bring it back to this. To, to well, as as I titled this recording session, Nash rules everything around me. Uh, Brett, Steve Nash, the coach of your Brooklyn Nets. That's right. Wow. Two time MVP of
0: the league, not the Canadian Basketball League, the National Basketball Association. Dirk Nowitzki's drinking partner. And the man who once filmed a three-minute Step Brothers parody, Stephen, John, Nash. And John, John is such a boring middle name. No wonder nobody knows that his middle name is John. It's brutal. Steve Nash sounds awesome. I, I, I mean, I feel the same way every Nets fan feels about this, which is hells. Yeah. <laughs> I'm super excited. Let's do it, day. baby. Yeah, for real.
1: Seven seconds to Mars. Let's go. That's um, yeah, I think that's what the offense was called. Definitely. Um, Amari Sotomayor was Mars.
0: <laughs> seven sec, oh, seven seconds to a Mars. See, exactly. That was a good one. Well, there, the the interesting part about this hire is it's 2020, and it ended up being met with a lot more controversy than you would historically expect for a hire like Nash. Much of that. Really race related which i thought was not unwarranted and super interesting um so we figured that two white guys who grew up in greenwich connecticut would be the best suited people to hop on after everything that's been said and, and really dissect our thoughts on this
1: definitely we figured that we're the people you guys want to hear from um no but seriously i think you know we you know for this section uh I think we would happily refer to you to uh, some other podcasts that uh, have done a little bit of a better job uh, with people who probably know more both about basketball and uh, being black in America than Brett and I do. Um, specifically, the, the Hoops of Jason podcast and the uh, Athletic NBA show with uh, Wozni Lambray and David Aldridge uh, and Jason Jackson was, was their guest that came out um, and talked about the Nash hire I thought was fantastic. Um, Amin Al Hassan was a guest on on two podcasts that I listened to: the Full Forty Eight with Howard Beck and the Glue Guys. Um, he had some great insight on on Nash, uh, just as somebody who worked with the Phoenix Suns during that time period, um, and and also delved into that. And I think both of our favorite uh, perspective on this was uh, Lloyd Pierce, who both is a a black head coach in the NBA, somebody who was a black assistant coach in the NBA before becoming a head coach. Uh, one of the few black coaches in the NBA, I think one of two. Uh, it's him and Dwayne Casey, um, black head coaches in the NBA who did not play in the NBA. um Who also happens to be Steve Nash's former roommate at Santa Clara. Um, he was on the full forty-eight with Howard Beck, and I recommend you give uh, those those three or four, I guess, a listen. Um, you know, in addition to to what we'll talk about here. Um, but we did want to bring a little bit of perspective into the topic. So I think, you know, less our opinion on the matter, which I think you don't need for a variety of reasons, but we did want to try to delve into the data a little bit. Um, because I know that we've had these kind of conversations in, in broad strokes on all these reaction podcasts, but nobody really kind of gotten into the numbers. So, uh, we did a little scraping of basketball reference. We, uh, you know, turned our, our superpower, uh, onto being, you know, Raptors point guard spread van sheet. Um, <laughs> and, uh. I mean, I, I was going to go with either
0: Rasheed Wallace, Tab Mello, or Nick Van XL, but I think Fred Van Sheet's the funniest.
1: I think Nick Van XL is pretty good. I was also thinking Data Bates Diop uh, would be good. Data Bates Diop. Data based God. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, we, we did dig in and, and we looked through, you know, basically all head coaching hires over the past 25 years. So back to the 95, 96 season um, which amounted to about 328. So definitely a lot of turnover in that profession. Um, and, you know, just, just kind of pulled that out to, to take a look at, at numbers overall. Um, I think, I guess, backing up a second, just to talk about the Nash thing, you know, I mean, Brett, do do you have a sense of like, why you felt like that became such a, a big part of the story. Do you think it was just the circumstance of of sort of happening after all the social justice stuff that had happened in the bubble, or or do you think there's more to it than that? I, I
0: think
1: I, I think there's always more to it in these situations,
0: and it, it it's so easy to try to find a simple explanation for these things because that's what's easiest for us us to understand instead of grasping the fact that we'll probably never truly figure out why something becomes a, a hot button issue and something else doesn't. But I, I think in this particular instance, more so than ever before, there was an overabundance of former or... Uh, or African American candidates that had experience in front offices, had experience as assistant coaches, had experience as head coaches, had great careers as former players that were on the market available for interview that not only were passed over for the job, but passed over for an interview for the job. One of them included Jock Vaughn, who was an assistant coach for the Nets, who ended up leading the Nets to a raucous regular season finish in the nba bubble and uh, almost respectable showing against the league best toronto raptors defense in the first round of the nba bubble playoffs this year and that coupled with race becoming a much bigger topic in the media this year uh, way later than it probably should have and all of the other current events that happen to be circulating around. And I think also a lot, a lot of people feeling more comfortable discussing race on their forums all led to this uh, cyclone of Looking at the Brooklyn hire, looking at it as a very, very desirable job where you wouldn't have to come in and prove yourself as a head coach, grinding it out over the years with a rebuilding team. You're coming into a team with superstars in a big market with an owner that is supposedly willing to spend money overspend on the luxury tax and to not even get a shot at that job for most of, if not all of these candidates really didn't sit well with a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I, you know, to me, I think the thing about it is th- the fact that it was such a sort of accessible story on its, you know, most sort of basic surface level, you know, if if you think about it, like, like if you were to write a, a scene in a movie that described how systemic racism might play a role in the hiring of NBA coaches, which, um, you know... Uh, don't know if that's really worthy, you know, of cinema. But um, you know, if if you were to to try to explain it to somebody in sort of the most basic terms, like you might personify it in the situation that we saw here, right? Which is, um, you know, a black head coach who had experience both as a as a head coach uh, and has been an assistant for several years um, on reputable teams. You know, has a, has a pretty good experience pedigree lined up. Basically, was told that he was the front runner for the job went down to the Orlando bubble, did absolutely everything that was asked of him, exceeded expectations by everybody's estimation, um, comes back and he's immediately passed over by a white candidate with no direct experience and a bunch of adjacent experience that, you know, we're sort of counting as, as coaching experience. And, And we can get into the experience piece of it, but, but I think that's just like a very accessible and resonant story for people. So I understand kind of why it got legs. I think when I dug into the numbers what I found was that, that kind of, you know, like, like at first I kind of pushed back against the narrative just because of the idea that, you know, Steve Nash is getting hired because he's a former player. And if you look recently at at former players that have moved on to the head coaching ranks, whether it's Jason Kidd or Derek Fisher, uh, doc rivers, you know, it actually has been a source of African-American coaches. So, so I initially kind of pushed back on it for that reason. And when I look at the numbers, you know, uh, I think that rings true t- to a large extent um, both because of that piece and because of the fact that I think by framing this entire conversation around experience, you're actually missing quite a bit of the source of the problem. So just diving into to what we have here, like 328 hires over that period, the breakdown's about 60, 40 in terms of black or uh, coaches of color. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, I use sort of a person of color designation, um, to, to break this data down, it, worth noting that there have literally been three people, uh, two head coaches and an interim coach, uh, Eric Spalestra, James Borrego, and Caleb Canalis, who is a, an interim coach for the Blazers, that were non-black, not or like neither black nor white, um, that were head coaches in the NBA. So it's it's pretty much just talking about black head coaches. Um, so sixty forty split between white head coaches and and coaches of color over that over hires over that time. Although I think it's noteworthy that. Uh, only two or three seasons in that 25-year span did the total number of coaches at the time get over 40%. So, you know, I think one thing that that's indicating to me is that, you know, it seems as if like whether because they're just not keeping the jobs this long, the turnover rates a little bit faster, et cetera, you know, there's some, some bias happening there. Um, I think the other thing that was interesting is if you look at the rates of like I I, you can kind of from an experience perspective you can bucket these hires into sort of four categories there are coaches that are hired that have been head coaches before coaches that are hired that have been assistant coaches before coaches that are coming from outside the NBA whether that's mostly the NCAA occasionally somebody coming from Europe um, or coaches that were a former player that were never assistant that moved you know to the front of the line so to speak Um, of those buckets the former player group is the only one that is majority uh, black, majority, you know, coach of color, essentially. Um, that breaks 60 40 the other way, but it's only 10 coaches over this past 25 year period. So um, it's not necessarily making a huge dent. What I did think was interesting was the former head coach bucket. Uh, is a little bit more skewed white and the former assistant coach bucket is a little bit more skewed toward coaches of color. And if you add a fifth bucket, which is uh, coaches that are hired after being interim coaches, that's another bucket that uh, skews kind of in the opposite direction um, and is about 60-40 the other way. So, you know, I think what you're seeing here is you know, black coaches are more likely to, or or I shouldn't say more likely because I won't speak to the predictive nature of these, but at least have been more frequently, you know, become interim coaches than, uh, than they have become head coaches. Um, and they're more frequently getting hired from assistant positions than they are from head coaching positions. So it, by framing the entire conversation with Nash around experience, I think you're really missing, you know, one of the strongest points, I think, which is looking into sort of why are white coaches more likely to be rehired? Why are they more likely to keep their jobs for longer? You know, what's going on there in terms of the reputation that they've developed for themselves? Um, and I think you see that a little bit in the in the Nash situation, more just with Jacques Fon. Because I think when we have talked about this... You know, we didn't necessarily think that Jacquin ever really was a serious candidate for it. And from some of the reporting that we've gotten around when the, um, this hire was actually sort of agreed upon, um, whether, you know, back in May, like, he really wasn't. And so, like, you know, maybe part of the question should be, why is, why is that? Why aren't people taking him as seriously, you know, as they are in the sort of frame up of this overall conversation? Um, and rather than looking at just sort of Nash like quote unquote skipping the line because I don't think that that's actually contributing to the problem.
0: It, I, I mean, th- that was fascinating to me when you showed me that data for the first time about white head coaches getting more of a pass when it comes to performance, not only staying on longer in tenure, but being more likely to get rehired and that's not really something that is easy to pick up anecdotally it's something you really have to dig in and dig into the numbers to see which is why i'm glad that we did that Uh, do do you have from looking through this data and and really taking the time to think about it because because you were the one that took the time to do this research and i appreciate that do you have any any major takeaways as to why you think that does happen or um driving forces in the league that might lead to that, whether they're systematic or, or individual organization driven.
1: I mean, uh, you know, I don't know exactly. And I certainly can't speak to the league in specifics. Um, I did, you know, I, I somebody was, Uh, circulating a a clip from like an outside the lines in in the 90s where John Thompson was sort of was speaking on this issue and he was talking about how he actually starts by saying you know I'm sick of the John Thompsons and Tubby Smiths of the world and basically saying that you know he's sick of black coaches needing to be perfect like you know he he was basically saying there is a path for black coaches to be successful as long as you are really really succeeding um, what there isn't is the opportunity for black coaches to sort of try and fail and reset themselves in the same way. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, I, you know, I think that that's fairly true sort of pervasively throughout society. I won't speak to the league in general. Uh, you know, I do wonder if there, and, and, you know, this is something, you know, perhaps more research could, could indicate, like one of the things that Stephen A. Smith said when he talked about you know, I think he was kind of the, one of the first people to bring this up in terms of, at least on a national scale, was talking about how, you know, Nash gets this opportunity to start with the Nets and start with a plum job that, you know, maybe a blackhead coach who's, I mean, like, even like Lloyd Pierce, like, you know, is starting in, a, in more of a rebuilding mode. Um you know I, I do wonder a little bit like when you look at guys like alvin gentry or monty williams where you know you you end up sort of circulating the same kind of treadmill of mediocrity teams um and getting passed back and forth and i think that maybe accounts a little bit for like you know coaches of color making up 40 like a solid like 40 percent of the hiring base but never actually maintaining that much presence in the league um just because of the of the turnover of those particular teams so i think that's part of it and and then you know i, I I think you just also need to look at like what, what it takes to make guys reputations. Like, like looking at somebody like Tom Thibodeau, um, you know, I, you know, he, he has this incredible reputation because of his work in Boston, primarily as an assistant. And then, you know, obviously some success with the bulls, you know, but he had pretty acrimonious departure in Chicago. He had a pretty acrimonious tenure in, in Minnesota. Um, but he's clearly looked at as a top guy in a way that, you know, maybe, uh some African-American head coaches aren't after they've been to to a couple different stops. But but ultimately I'd say like just the one kind of main takeaway that I had in going through these numbers is when you're dealing with things like this that are systemic, I think, you know, we do our understanding of the problem a bit of a disservice by looking at the individual hires and sort of trying to categorize them as like a binary, like racist or not racist. Like I don't think there's a racist hire for, 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 Steve Nash to become the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. I don't think it's a racist hire for Billy Donovan to become the head coach of the Chicago Bulls or Tom Thibodeau to become the head coach of the New York Knicks. But I do think that some of the biases that, you know, exist in the background that do skew the numbers, um, you know, in the direction that, that they're skewed are present in each of those hires in each of those processes. So, um, you know, I think it's a, You know, like everything, it's a very complex problem. It's one that I think I'm glad we're talking about. We, you know, we should be talking about it in the league. But I think if you're going to talk about it and you're going to try to make a difference there, I think you need to appreciate the complexity and the nuance that exists within something like this, and not just look at it at its most surface level and and you know try to pat yourself on the back by making you know these proclamations. For sure. And I think
0: once a process like that starts, it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy or something that you're using to bias your decisions without even knowing it. Let's say you're a front office executive and you've been in the league a long time and you've just sort of been around to watch things happen and notice who gets hired, who gets fired, whatever, not, without really thinking about it or processing it. Maybe on some level you're associating blackhead coaches with failure because they're not being allowed to stick around long enough to see successes. They're not being allowed to be a Mike Malone who had mediocre Sacramento teams all of a sudden gets hired in Denver. Denver gets super lucky with a second round pick who becomes a top 10 player in the league and all of a sudden this year Mike Malone is looked at as the MVP coach of the playoffs and is in the Western Conference Finals after potential years that could have been looked at as failure and if that was an African-American head coach maybe that person wouldn't have been hired again and the more that happens the more likely it is that other that uh, other coaches who have already had a position are going to continue to get passed by, whether that's an active thought process or not. And one of the things I really liked that you brought up was that's a really easy way that the one really easy way to dismiss racism being part of the system or bias being part of the system is to look at every individual situation. As, as a one-off versus look at the whole. And I think if you look at all these firings, hirings, tenures, rehirings, there was a specific relationship or a specific set of circumstances that could easily lead someone to say, oh, this had nothing to do with bias. This person knew that person, had a relationship with this person. It was perfect for this scheme, whatever it is. But it takes zooming out and looking, at the, looking through the league and all these hirings, firings, tenures, rehires from a macro perspective to understand that there might be a problem, where that problem lies, understand what lens you might be looking at things through that could be biasing your opinion. And I think that that is also a reflection of how we look at society too. I think the folks that are pushing back most on, oh, America's not racist. A lot of the arguments that I see are, hey, well, based on my experience or from what I've seen or from the people that I've spoken with, this doesn't exist. Whereas, hey, you're one of over 250 million people in this country. If you zoom out, look at the data, these end up being systemic problems that might not affect you individually, but your piece of the pie or your myopic view is so, so tiny that it's impossible for you to see those things or see your own biases. And I think that's an issue that okay, like we face everywhere, not just in sports. And it's interesting to see how the NBA has become a lightning rod for these type of topics. And I love it. I love that the NBA is at the forefront of these issues. And then it forces these conversations because what's happening here, looking at the Nash hiring and saying, well, this particular instance isn't racist, but allowing that to turn into a conversation of, oh, well, if you look at all the hirings and firings of head coaches, assistant coaches, front office executives throughout the history of the league, then yeah, there is a strong element of, of bias and racism that exists there that you wouldn't have noticed unless you actually dug into the data and saw what was really happening. And unfortunately, you know, most people aren't gonna, to pull a spreadband sheet and go to basketballreference.com and, and, do, and do hours of research and go comb through the data to see what percentage of the league is people of color versus white folks and how long tenures are and who gets rehired. And I think that becomes the issue because that stuff's hard to do, whereas pulling from your own anecdotal experience is very, very easy to do. And then justifying why you're not the bad guy or why nothing is wrong is also very easy to do
1: yeah i I think that's very fair and and I guess like i mean I, I I guess to shift gears a little bit um and just sort of move toward our our general thoughts on the higher i mean i think the if you're if you're cool i mean do you do you have anything else that you want to add on, on this particular topic? No, no, I've probably watched poetic for too long on it <laughs> well so and and I guess just to kind of bridge like the other piece of sort of why this story was so resonant, i think is because this was kept as under wraps as it was. So there was no sort of preliminary research done by anybody just on, on Nash in general, as a coach, I think it caught everybody off guard in terms of like just the fact that he would even want the job. And I think his lack of experience, quote unquote, uh, you know, becomes the story. And so then that feeds into the the narrative overall, but it also feeds into, I think what we would expect to see, you know, from him on the basketball court, this, this, next year or, or on the sideline, I guess, because you're not really on the court if you're coaching. Um, so, I mean, I guess, Brett, like, from from your perspective, knowing that we're two weeks out and, and everybody's probably listened to the same 75,000 reaction pods that I did, like, what do you feel, I guess, what do you feel like is the key to this hire or or, or what's something that's been discussed a little bit less that you think is really important that that you want Nets fans to know? I,
0: The most important thing that I've aggregated from all the Nash interviews interviews with his former teammates like Raja Bell or Lloyd Pierce um, have been, I think he's going to pull from his past failures and his past experiences and try to architect the nets around why he felt his teams failed to reach the mountaintop as a player so two examples that i'll give of that he recently exalted the houston rockets uh, mike d'antoni led of course so he had to compliment his former coach that turned him into a two two-time league mvp with seven seconds or less offense he exalted the rockets for even having the skill set and the audacity to push that all-time great Warriors team to seven in the Western Conference Finals and have two matchups with them where they legitimately had a shot in both the public and private eye to take them down, when in reality, injuries aside, nobody was going to beat those Warriors teams with once Kevin Durant joined them. And then number two, looking at the Nash Press Conference, he talked about defense being the number one thing that he was going to focus on with the team. And I think that harkens back to his experience running the uh, running the offense for the Phoenix Suns. Those teams were top three in the Western Conference for five plus years. They led the league in offensive rating almost every one of those seasons. They revolutionized the way that the league looks at talent, looks at the way an offensive system should be run, and really looked at it the pace of the game it changed everything but they were never above 15th middle of the pack when it came to defensive rating and lo and behold not only did they never make it out of the western conference they never even made it to the western conference finals now i know there was some weird suspension stuff injury stuff you can talk through all the context in there but some hip checking i believe <laughs> exactly uh, those hips did not lie unfortunately and when we when we think about all of that, and I I, I think uh, I listened to one of the Bill Simmons book of basketball podcasts where they would do a particular player, and then they would have some that one of those players or somebody related to that player on to review an important game in that player's history or career, and one of the folks they had on was Steve Nash, and they went through an old playoff game with him. And he said that he doesn't like to think about his playing days because it's too painful and he's moved on and he's focused on uh, media, family, being a consultant for the Warriors, you name it. And watching that game brought back a a lot of painful memories for him. And I think he realizes that the thing missing from those teams is the ability to step up the defense in the playoffs to a championship level, which is bare minimum somewhere around 10th in the league and it's not a given but you probably have to have a top 10 offensive rating top 10 defensive rating to be competing for a championship and if you look at this nets roster there are no world beaters when it comes to defense on there i I really don't think they have the talent to be a top tier defensive team right now but can they be good enough Or can they make moves that get them to a place where they're good enough because the offense is going to be there. You surround a Kyrie, KD, Karis, KD, Karis, Kyrie, pick and roll with any number of players as long as they can spread the floor just a little bit, you're going to be okay. You're going to be able to score both in the regular, se- the regular minutes of a game and in the end of a game. But can you lock down on a championship level? I mean, look at all the teams that are left in the playoffs now. The Denver Nuggets, while they struggled originally when they came to the bubble, were top 10 in defensive rating for the season. The Lakers, the number one t- or the number two team in the league when it came to defense. The Raptors were the number one team. Uh, the Celtics were top 10. The Heat were I, I don't think their defensive pretty much that high i need to look that up but in the playoffs they've really turned it up and they've changed the way their team is architected and traded for multiple defenders as well
1: yeah i mean they're a completely different team with with crowder and igudala and Iguodala, and, for sure And bam at center and bam you know having continued throughout the season to grow into just like an absolute defensive menace Um, so I I think they certainly qualify in terms of being a top tier defense. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there.
0: No, no, it's good. I'm I'm rambling on about this, but I I just think, I, I think what I've noticed and what I'm excited about is it seems to me based on all these quotes that I'm hearing from Nash's, he understands where his teams fell short and he's going to use that to drive his experience as a head coach to make sure that the Nets don't make the same mistakes that his teams did, get intoxicated by offense, hope that it was good enough to overcome a mediocre defense, and then ultimately when the going got tough in the playoffs, not that there weren't tough players on those teams, but they just didn't have the right types of players to defend at the level that they needed to. I mean, you had Nash playing through... Broken noses, multiple injuries, black eyes. Like th- those players were tough, but they weren't world beaters when it came to defense.
1: That's true. Although I'd certainly take a a Sean Marion on <laughs> on this team. Oh my, my
0: God. Um and <laughs> be a champion, Sean Marion.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So I guess um from from my perspective, just so but I completely agree with everything that you you're saying. I mean, so far, all the quotes from him, all of the, all of the kind of like basketball philosophy stuff, I think, you know, he's going to be completely locked in on. It just seems like the way that he thinks about the game. And and that's one of the the points that I think, uh, both Rajah Bell and Amin not made pretty frequently, um, on, you know, on podcasts discussing the hire is like, it's not just like his ability to think the game. I think it, Amin hasn't like, uh, drew the comparison with like Magic Johnson where like we always make fun of him for his tweets and it's just like he's such a genius basketball player that if everything seems obvious to you then then what you're gonna you know tweet out is just completely obvious stuff um, whereas like I think his his thought was like with Nash like it's it's not just his ability to think the game and to understand the game and to understand the game at the level of like a Kevin Durant But it's his ability to communicate it and to make sure that everybody understands and and to be, uh, you know, have the EQ to to be able to to communicate that and and empathize with, you know, what Kevin Durant's going through, what Kyrie Irving's going through, you know, all the way down to what um, I guess it wouldn't be Theo Pinson anymore, but, you know, Janet Musa, if he's still here or Nick Claxon or, you know, whoever's on the end of the bench, um, you know, being able to, to bring them into the fold and get them involved. So I think those are definitely things that get me excited about his tenure Um, in terms of like what sort of under, under the radar thing uh, that I, you know, I think, or I would want to bring up and highlight is, you know, not to take the focus off Nash and, and everything that he's going to bring. But to me, like, I feel like there've been so, so much discuss like the way that this has been discussed so frequently is basically, you know, that this is a KD Kyrie, mostly KD. Like this is KD's, you know, the Nets are hiring KD's guy, KD's chosen coach. Um, and basically sort of describing it as, you know, the franchise is taking on all this risk by bringing in a a guy who's never coached before, you know, to appease their star player. But when I listen to Sean Marks on the Woj pod and sort of everything that I've heard from people that seem to know both of them, you know, it's important to me that, that Steve Nash is is not just a KD guy. Like he's a Sean Marks guy as well. Um, and I think, you know, when you talk about that experience, I, the experience factor in terms of this hire, I think you could very easily have made the case before this hire happened that the most difficult challenge that this person was going to face was being somebody that Katie and Kyrie Irving could respect being somebody that those guys would look up to that would have control over that locker room um, and would relate to those guys while also, you know, being somebody that could communicate with the front office. So it, it's not like they're bringing in Royal Ivy or or Rick Barnes or, uh, you know, (laughs) so it's so easy to shit on Rick Barnes, (laughs) like some (laughs) Randall from Duke or like Katie. Like, you know, like it's not like they're bringing in somebody that's like the equivalent of uncle Dennis for like Kyrie's actual uncle drew. Like, you know, they're bringing in somebody that, I think has the trust on both sides that I think is uniquely positioned to be a good communicator between what's going on in that locker room and, you know, what's happening in the front office. And so, you know, that to me, I think is a little bit underplayed in terms of its importance. Um, and, and it's not necessarily that like I'm pro marks over KD or anything like that, but just somebody that, that likes to at least, uh, convince myself that the organization is running with, you know, a modicum of, of sane process, you know, top-down sort of process overall. Like it, it is good from my perspective that, you know, Sean Marks still is in control. There still is building the roster and it's not just going to be, you know, pulling in guys from, from their AAU teams to, you know, like, I mean, Hopefully, Lance. We've, you know, maybe we've seen the last of Lance Thomas. Perhaps, um, you know, it's not just going to be bringing their their buddies in to to try to get more reps. Like, there's there's actually an architect that's still kind of at the helm here. Well, listen,
0: the Seventy Sixers had the process. The Nets have the process. We're Canadian now, so you have to <laughs> you have to trust the process. You have to trust the offense and the style of it. I that I mean, so the way that I look at it, when you have a team that has the type of talent and the type of star power that the nets have your job as a leader should be to remove as many distractions as possible and just let your players do what they do best, which is go on the court and do insane, ridiculous things that, 99% of the players in league history probably couldn't pull off and they do it multiple times per night. And Nash is the perfect guy to be able to do that. Because like you said, he's going to be able to relate to all the players, but he's also going to be somebody that they can learn from outside of just being a good guy, which I think a lot of former players who become coaches end up being who haven't played at that MVP or star level. And the fact that he can communicate with a star and see the game on their level, but also see the game and understand the game from a role player's perspective is incredibly unique. And I think that's really going to allow the Nets to just focus on playing basketball. And that that goes back to what KD was saying on, uh, God, I forget which podcast he was on. I think it was The Old Man of the Three with J.J. Redick, where he was talking about the reason, one of the reasons that he chose Brooklyn outside of the Knicks being a dumpster fire, he just didn't want to say it, is they seemed like the type of franchise that would just allow him to play basketball And Nash seems like the type of coach that will just allow him to play basketball and not worry about perception or ego or how it looks to the media or how he's performing as a head coach. Like Whether Nash fails or succeeds at this coaching gig is not going to tarnish his legacy. And in reality, he really has nothing to lose except some time with his family and his personal life by taking this job. And I think that pressure being alleviated from him and not having that reflect in the way that he's going to coach is going to be massive for this team of very mercurial players that just want to get on the court play and not really be bothered with any of the uh window dressing of the league so to speak
1: yeah i mean i, I forget which of the podcasts that it, it was but they were talking about how you know uh, i think it was uh i mean i'll ask it again like talking about how You know, one thing that he, the only thing he worried about with Steve Nash or the only reason that he didn't think that Steve Nash would be an NBA head coach was like, it was just, he has so many other interests. I think Rajah Bell had mentioned it as well. Like, you know, he has so many other interests. Like, does he really want to dedicate himself to coaching? But at the same time, like when you're, when you're coaching Kevin Durant and you're coaching Kyrie Irving, like. I think the, the point was, you know, you can't be Tom Thibodeau. You can't be somebody that's just going to eat, sleep, breathe basketball all the time and, you know, wants you to be Jimmy Butler and just be super intense about it. Like, that's just not those guys' style. And so if you're going to get the most out of them, you need much more of like a Phil Jackson type to be, you know, talking to them about, you know, Zen Buddhism and, and Native American philosophies and, and whatever else, you know, and those were Jackson's examples. And I don't know what Nash's would be, but like, or, or, or what the fuck Kyrie's would be either back <laughs> <laughs> but I think, but I think we need somebody that can relate to them on that human level first, um, and then sort of explore, you know, the ins and outs of the job with them. And, and I think also like having a sort of healthy um, delineation too, between like, you know, we are people that, you know, it, it's, it's kind of like you have with a relationship with like a, a regular coworker where they're like, there's a difference between like being actual friends with people <laughs> and being sort of coworker friends where, you know, it's like, all right, we're friends, but like, you know, at any moment, like I might leave for a different job or you might leave for a different job and like, you know, good, good on us. And then we'll never gonna see each other again, or, or we'll see each other, you know, at a happy hour every, you know, four <laughs> or something. dude, that's you know, the like, true test
0: though. That's the true test. If somebody leaves the company and you
1: still end up talking to them, you're like, Oh, Oh, look at that. I guess we actually were friends. Weird. (laughs) Nice. Look at that. What's up, dude? But I mean that, you know, I, I think to a certain extent, like you, you need some of that separation. And, and I feel like he can be somebody that like, you know, understand, you know, like the, the court time can kind of be what that is and, and giving them the opportunity to play basketball and, and getting lost in that sort of side of it. And then navigating kind of the bullshit together, because, you know, I'm sure that won't be his favorite part as a coach. And I'm sure it won't be their It's not their favorite part as players either. So, you know, I, I think it's I think it's really you know, the, the, more and more that I thought about it, like, you know, I, I think he's kind of a perfect kindred spirit for them. I don't, I don't really think you could have nailed those aspects of the higher better. Now, obviously you are still taking on a tremendous amount of risk because he has never coached before. And, you know, we've seen that not go well, but, but even when I look, you know, in the research that I did, like, like when I looked at um, the, you know, the, the 10 guys that ended up, you know, going straight from being a player to uh, you know, being a head coach aside from like Derek Fisher, like, for the most part, like, these these kind of worked out pretty well, right? You had, well, I guess, I mean, Jason Kidd, I I thought he was a very good coach. Um, I, I thought what he did with the Nets, frankly, w- was a pretty remarkable coaching job um, in terms of reconstructing that lineup uh, as, like, the sort of long ball uh, team, you know, I think he, he had some, some challenges kind of similar actually to Kenny Atkinson when when he was in Milwaukee in terms of like advocating for his system above what made sense for the players. Um, and, and you know, I think he's had some issues with like dealing with ownership and fitting into the structure. So, so there's some red flags there, but like, I think his actual X's and O's like coaching was, was pretty good. Um, Steve Kerr, obviously, you know, Nothing needs to be said there. Mark Jackson, I think, did a very, very good job with that Warriors team before Kerr took over. Uh, Isaiah Thomas, when obviously, you know, all the Knicks stuff (laughs) is a problem. But, uh, you know, I think he was pretty successful in Indiana uh, before that. Larry Bird, you know, took that team to the conference finals. Doc Rivers obviously has blossomed into, you know, a pretty excellent coach, Um, 3-1 series notwithstanding. Danny Ainge, um, you know, I guess he did more as an exec than a coach. Um, And then there's, like, some Randas in here, like Vinny Del Negro and ML Carr, but, um, you know, for the most part, like that's not a terrible list. Frankly, I think if you look at the list of guys that have come from college to the NBA, it's, it's probably worse. When you, you know, yeah. like Perry And Patino and, you know, you get some, some winners in there, like, you know, Brad Stevens, but you know, there's plenty of direct uh, on that side of it too. So I don't, I, you know, I think it's wrong to act like oh he has no head coaching experience so therefore he won't be able to do the job because he has plenty of experience playing basketball at a high level and at an NBA level. So um, I think that I, I do think that in this case that that adjacent experience means something and is important. Hey,
0: well, and, and I'll point out a couple more things that you got me thinking about when you were talking through that. One is who better to look at. Two guys that probably don't have it defensively, one that never had it in Kyrie, and one that you probably don't want him guarding the best player on the other team because you're trying to preserve him for the playoffs in KD, and find a way to hide them within a defensive system than a guy who spent his entire career hiding within a defensive system as the biggest flaw in that system. I mean... Who has better experience with that than Steve
1: Nash does? I think you're being a little bit unfair, I mean, <laughs> Jesus, dude. If we're hiding KD, I think we're kind of screwed. It's probably our best. I mean, aside from Jared Allen, whether or not Jared Allen's on the team is a different question. But like, aside from Jared Allen, I mean, maybe Garrett Temple is better than him defensively, but he's he's probably up there. Certainly as a weak side, you know, help help defender. I think he's he's pretty damn good hopefully. I I think he is good. I think he's a smart player and I think
0: that he might even be able to provide some of the rim protection that he used to too, depending on how that pep in his step looks when he comes back. But the point that I was trying to make is not that he's necessarily a bad defender but that you probably want to take the burden off of him defensively based on the fact that he's coming back from an injury and hasn't played real five-on-five basketball in years. And that's a really good way to put a pounding on that Achilles. And yeah, you'll give it a test, but we're just trying to keep this guy healthy for the playoffs. So if we can hide him a little bit more, not necessarily because of his lack of skill set but because we're trying to preserve his body, that's that's more than what I was thinking of there. And then on the flip side, hell, I mean we're talking about the Nets having to eat into the luxury tax to even bring back the players that they have on this current roster. Steve Nash as a player, for got guys to come to their team on minimum contracts because he was known as a guy that would resurrect players careers get people involved was a supportive teammate and help people either have career years or have comeback seasons I think that reputation is going to carry over to what he would do as a head coach, not only looking at Steve Kerr's everybody-involved philosophy that he got from Phil Jackson, where everybody got a chance to play, sometimes even in the playoffs, and that got some of these guys' contracts and a lot of them to stick around in the league for years, but also as a player where he you look at guys like Quentin Richardson or Raja Bell or players that had phenomenal tim thomas players that had phenomenal seasons playing along steve nash that had been pretty mediocre in other places and you have to think that it's going to translate into an offensive system and you think that maybe we can pick up some free agents not necessarily off the scrap heap but they would come to the nets for cheap because they believe okay i might not get the contract that i want this season but if i go to the nets and i play for somebody like steve nash who knows how to make everybody successful and the team wins i somehow put up decent stats that could get me a better contract in the future I'd be willing to take a one-year flyer and you're looking at picking up the JaVale McGee's of the league or the David West of the league or some of those type of players that are looking for that last contract You're hoping that's what will get
1: them there I think David West has already had his last contract but yeah oh yeah he's already... <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, this,
0: these are more historical examples <laughs> uh, dear, dear, dear. at least not West <laughs> sorry sorry um, No, but but I
1: guess on that uh, on that note, or on that thought, do you, you know how does this hire change your thoughts or or your expectations for the off season? Like, is there anything that you've heard Nash say, or anything that this hire brought to mind that makes you think that the off season will be different than you previously thought, or, or reinforces something that you thought was going to happen and makes you think that it's going to happen more?
0: Well, what I like is Nash comes out and starts talking about defense and then all of a sudden the rumors around the Nets trading for Drew Holiday, which have been around for a long time, so this is nothing new, immediately start to heat up. And I think that we're going to start prioritizing finding players that can help shore up the Nets defense and get us to that championship level on that side of the ball. A lot fat or uh, over prioritizing players that might be able to improve our offense or stretch the floor. I what I what I'm guessing is the Nets, whether it's with Nash's consult or they've always felt this way, believe that they have enough on offense, and it's going to become about okay, cool, how can we add to the defensive side of the ball without subtracting the all the world-class talent that we have on the offensive side of the ball. So maybe that's not something new, but reading the tea leaves there about what Nash said, the type of hire that we made, and the rumors that immediately come out about the players that the Nets are looking to trade for, I think we're going to prioritize shoring up either switchable wings or players that uh, can shift KD and Kyrie into favorable positions to preserve their bodies but keep the defense passable, you name it. I think we're really going to focus on defense this offseason.
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, I think coming into this offseason, I, I would have told you that what the Nets needed was, you know, wing defense and, you know, somebody that can play kind of like a like a defensive minded. F- four stretch ish four that can be a small ball center um, to to allow them to unlock some of the switching and versatility you know later in games when they when they go to that i, I still think that those are kind of the top needs i'm glad that they're mm-hmm. wanting to prioritize defense i do think it's something that that they need to add pieces to get better at um you know but but i also think it's there are pieces that can be added that fit fairly nicely within the way that this roster is presently constructed. I guess the one thing that I said, so, so there was a quote um, recently from Nash where he was talking about Kevin Durant and basically saying that um, Kevin has the flexibility to play all five positions and I'm going to play him at all five positions. Um, and, you know, that to me was, I mean, first of all, I don't think that there are five positions in basketball anymore. There's basically, you know, lead ball handler, uh, center, and everything else. <laughs> Like, <laughs> <wing>. <laughs> um, so, but, but what that did get me thinking on, you know, both from that comment, um, both from sort of the idea of, of, of knowing that, you know, particularly as Kane, you're older and you're going to want him defensively bringing that rim protection, maybe a little bit more so than than being an on, on ball defender um, and watching, you know, obviously things are a little bit skewed in the bubble because teams have shot so much better than they have. You know, in previous playoffs and and, and, in the regular season, but like like watching how teams have really, really, really struggled to play um, drop coverages against the pick and roll, you know, really makes me wonder if you if you you feel like the the best version of this team is actualized through switching. Um, You feel like the best version of this is actualized through some kind of small ball and you're committed to essentially two centers that are going to force you to play drop coverage. Does that mean that the Nets are going to be more likely to shop Jared Allen this odd season, knowing that you're going to be stuck with DeAndre Jordan, um, but at least exploring that market. I don't know um, because I think it's, it's going to be tough to find better sort of production for dollar value than you're going to get from Allen on his rookie contract. At the same time, you know, I do think he has some value on the trade market and, and trying to, Um, convert what you're getting from him into one of those other areas of need, particularly wing defense, does make a lot of sense.
0: Well, I'll say this. And I think you're right that Jared Allen's value will never be higher. I don't know... Spencer, Spencer Dimwini's value could definitely go up from here too, especially considering we're probably going to try to keep Kyrie's minutes down during the regular season. But there's a couple things to consider: Do we trade them now, thinking that at no point where their val- will their value get higher? Spencer Dimwini, sixth man of the year candidate, uh, was considered for the All Star team. Jared Allen was a beast in the bubble; had some tremendous dunks, great blocks. Look, he was then that second best player by. Uh, any, any metrics when you look at it and even their best player by some other metrics too if you're looking at on off and some of the more advanced things or knowing that Adam Silver is committed or desires having a standard season regardless as to when that starts meaning 82 games, does that, in Mark's and Nash's mind, give them enough of a sample size prior to the trade deadline to really dig into the nuts and bolts of who is expendable and who isn't based on how the current roster is constructed and make a decision at the trade deadline without sacrificing this first year, which is part of the championship window. And I think the fact that the NBA is looking at a full regular season means that the Nets might be a little bit more conservative than originally thought in this off season. And if they're like, hey. We can get drew holiday without give without giving up the farm and that still preserves our flexibility to make another big new, big move if we need to okay great i mean he's definitely young enough and he adds the things that we're looking for on the wing but if another team makes a more compelling offer we're not going to beat that we can run it back and we feel confident that somebody else will become available that plugs the holes that we're looking to fill at a price that we're willing to pay and that's right that's what i think that they have to weigh like does Trading for a potentially more—I don't even know how to—like a more sharpened or a more specific piece after assessing the team at the trade deadline and having less time to gel as a team—work out better than making a trade now when value might be higher, or not. And that's—and those are the two choices that I think the Nets have to make. I'm leaning towards not necessarily making a big move this offseason and running it back because some of the trade targets that we've talked about seem to be sought after by other teams looking to make a run but I could be wrong.
1: Yeah, I, I think I agree with you in general. Like I I would be I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they saw a really big deal this offseason because I do think that the that the what they'll do is um, just sort of shop around to see what is available. And if the price is right on something, you go for it. But, um, you know, I, I think what will more likely happen is they'll come back with a slightly augmented version of the existing lineup, you know, go in figuring that you can make deals at the deadline or, or you can keep some of those assets for a bigger trade next off season. I agree with that. I think that makes sense, you know, for instance, in terms of like trying to figure out the redundancy between Spencer Dinwiddie and Karis LeVert um, on a team with Kyrie Irving and, and potentially Garrett Temple and potentially Joe Harris. Like, like that to me, like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe you juggle that rotation around and you try to figure it out. The center position is the one that I, I just wonder if you're better off not doing it that way. Um, and, you know, I, I I guess at the same time you could just you could just figure that by the time you get the playoffs you just sit both of those guys. I guess it's also possible that you know I mean Allen looked pretty spry in that series like and, and I do think he does a very good job when he gets switched on to sort of you know bigger wings or things like that like he can stay with them like it's 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 not like he's Brook Lopez um, or even DeAndre Jordan out there but you know given that the Nets are going to commit to DeAndre Jordan like are you just are you better off? with a different sort of look in that second unit, particularly because then like, like when we were kind of bouncing different tr- trade scenarios around any, any, one in which they ended up with sort of a stretchier five at that second position, like not only does it mean that y- you get that guy there, which can potentially unlock things on offense. It also means, I think that, that, you know, if you're talking about replenishing wing defense or, or things like that, like that means you could go out and you could get a Michael Kidd Gilchrist, or you could bring him back like, dust off Amon Shumpert uh, or D- David West, if we're just bringing old people in here. Um, <laughs> David West is a joke, Amon Shumpert, tell is not. Um, but like, I think MKG is a good example or bring back Ronda Hallis-Jefferson. Like, you know, somebody like that who can anchor a defense, but, you know, struggles to to space the floor. you know, I think y- you can bring them in, integrate them in the regular season with, you know, a stretch big on the floor with them at the same time. And then, you know, allow them to, you know, get minutes, with the team kind of work their, their way into the rotation. And then when the playoffs come around and they're playing in centerless lineups where like KD is your nominal center, like, you know, then, then you can unleash them, you know, as a wing defender and and use them in the, in the role man slot on offense or, or something like that. So, so that would be the one area, like Allen to me, Allen sort of went from being the guy that I was most confident would be back just because his like um, effectiveness and production to contract ratio is just so like ridiculous that you know how could you not bring him back to to being the guy that's like maybe the closest to being an odd man out just because of the position that he plays Uh, you know and i i did i did
0: go through a thought exercise where he is redundant and his value may never be higher but at the same time i think the nets also have to balance how do we get through the regular season healthy rested enough to make a run and knowing that deandre jordan ain't going to play 82 games, he might not even play 60. Who are the players that are going to take those minutes as a workhorse and be able to keep the team on track to get a good enough seed to be in a favorable position to make a deep run in the playoffs? And I think Allen fits that role nicely. Um, And if you're looking to get a player on the chief that might stretch the floor or provide similar value for less money, you're probably going to get an older player and can that provide person fill the roster or fill those minutes competently without getting injured themselves and I think they have to worry about that with both Kyrie and DeAndre Jordan and that's the argument to keeping some of these younger guys around at least for the first half of the season because Dinwiddie can fill in nicely for Kyrie and Jared can fill in nicely for DeAndre if they do have to sit out a couple weeks or a month to get their 53rd bone spur of their career taken out of their uh, thoracic cavity or whatever it is.
1: Damn. Fucking Doogie hazard over here with the medical terminology. Welcome um, to
0: Thoracic Park.
1: Very good. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think overall that makes sense. And I think we can do a deeper dive maybe on uh, you know, just, just an entire hour on roster baiting at at some point, um, just on, you know, different deals that they could make or or different pieces that they're looking for and and things like that. Um, but I guess just bringing it back to Nash for a second, like as, as we talk about the future and we talk about who they might bring in and and you talk about sort of the potential length of, of what the window could be, I guess, Brett, just putting you on the spot, like how many years do you think Steve Nash is the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets?
0: This is not a cop-out answer, and I'll give you a real tenure in a second, but I think he sticks around at least as long as Kevin Durant sticks around with the Nets.
1: And, well, yeah, no shit.
0: Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he he, he could get fired. Yeah, fair, fair enough, fair enough. Uh,
0: so I, 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 like, I would say minimum two years. I'm going to say maximum five to six years, and I think that – Nash is grooming himself or uh, gearing up to take a front office position akin. To Sean Marks at some point. So, my ideal world is Nash sticks around, has success as a coach, uh, enough success to be able to relate to what it's like to be a head coach in the league, and then moves into a front office position when he wants to go back to spending more time with his family, but still be very involved in the league and in basketball. And I'm sure that some of these guys, Kyrie, Katie, the players that he's friends with, also have similar notions where, hey, you know, Nash is as a consultant and that seemed pretty cool and I'd love to do that for players in the league after I retire and maybe all of a sudden we create the same legacy that the Spurs do which you know Marks has always been keen to do where we're taking our former players people that were involved in the organization that were part of the culture and involving them in roles and giving them positions and it just becomes this whole family and this culture that perpetuates over decades instead of just a couple years one and done people use it as a jump off point so that's what i think the nets are aiming for and that's what i think nash is aiming for i don't think this is just a head coaching position for him i think he's looking at it as this is what i'm going to use as my stepping stone to become more in the league and i want to learn what it's like on the front lines and how to succeed in that position and i think it's going to drive how i make decisions as a future executive so i'll say in this particular position with
1: the nets i would give him five years it's a very thoughtful response. I'm gonna say uh, three years, uh, you know, a puncher's chance, a real chance, and a year for the wheels to fall off, um, and, you know. And and I think that that kind of dovetails with the the length lengths of guys' contracts. Um, I you know, I call me a pessimist. I don't think we have a, a ton of bites at the apple here with this one. So hold on to your butts. Let's do it. Uh-huh. Last uh-huh. quote. You didn't say the magic word. <laughs> uh. Where's the last question? Hit me. Last question for you. Very important. Uh, who's going to look better in their sideline suit? Kenny Atkinson, uh, as uh, shouts to Colin Brady on Twitter, once aptly described him as an upscale funeral director with a cocaine habit, or Steve Nash, who once, I believe, was a model uh, for Bonobos, I, I believe. So some business casual wear. Um, who's Who You who got better on the sidelines and in Kevin Arnovitz's next uh, coach's Coaches in suits rankings. I think Nash is going to have Kenny in every category, but ability
0: to look fly in a suit on the sidelines. Kenny always made sure that he was killing it over there. And Nash looks great in a suit. Don't get me wrong, but I think he's going to be a guy that's more about fit and overall comfort wearing suits that look great, but are really made out of athletic material and not necessarily are uh, top of the line form fitted suits. Whereas Kenny was all about the look. He just, you know, he just had more to lose, right? If a guy like Kenny loses his job, uh, he's really going to have to fight to get another one. If Nash loses his job, he probably gets another one or can work in a front office or can be a consultant or can just go to ESPN and be an analyst.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think the real question with Kenny is, is uh, how are those suits going to play on the sidelines in Oklahoma City next year? Uh, because, well, I mean, I don't actually know whether they'll be playing games, but... Um, but, you know, I feel like that's a pretty likely landing spot for him. And I wonder if he I also just wonder if he would just flat turn that job down and be like, fuck, I'm not going there. <laughs> well, here's the
0: deal. If Kenny gets that job, you know for sure that Chris, Chris Paul is getting traded. So if that
1: happens, Chris Paul is available, everybody. Oh, I'm pretty sure Chris Paul is available, everybody. Like, I don't think <laughs> I don't think they need to hire Kenny Atkinson to figure that out. <laughs> Listen, He's available. but Who the heck is going to trade for him? maybe the Sixers? I, the Sixers, the Bucks, like there, there are some teams, you know, moving into desperate times here. Oh, that
0: would be interesting. Oh man, the Bucks.
1: I mean, those, those to me are the two top candidates. And then you could also just throw out like some wild card ass team, like, you know, fucking Kings or something. Or just like, Oh, we're one Chris Paul away. <laughs> this seven seed. We'll give you De'Aaron Fox. <laughs> and whichever Bogdanovich we currently have.
0: And uh, George Carl.
1: talking about somebody that looked good in a suit uh not george carl anyway brett what else what else you got for the people uh the last thing i got is have you ever seen george carl and john lithgow in a room at the same time i have not but if you told me that like (laughs) george carl was an alien from men in black wearing a john lithgow suit i'd believe you (laughs) I, <laughs> thank you.
0: Thank you for believing my crazy conspiracy theories. There's a lot of those that go around nowadays.
1: Because he's, you know, like, misshapen to be a John Lithgow, but... Yeah, that's true.
0: He's a little, a little bit skinnier than John now.
1: Uh, I guess I haven't seen George Carl recently. Well, uh... On that note... I think we should probably wrap it up. Now that we've entered <laughs> into... Now that we've ventured into John Lithgow commentary.
0: What's, uh... Well, Let's go enjoy our evenings.
1: So uh, if you liked it or you hated it, whatever, you can go uh, Russell and Fro on the uh, iStore there. Give us a review, five stars, or unsubscribe, resubscribe. Apparently that's what the kids are doing. Who borrow somebody's phone, subscribe them to it. They'll love you for it. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Russell and Fro. You can email us, RussellandFro at gmail.com. You could also email us at netspaulce at gmail.com. We're, we're pretty not picky. Um, and, uh, you know, keep listening. Have a good one. Like mama, you nurse me. me with hard knocks. Better than Berkeley. They said you murdered me by the time I was 21. That shit disturbed me. But you never hurt me. Hello, Brooklyn. We had a daughter. Guess what I'm a caller. Brooklyn Carter. When I left you for Virginia, they are in the
0: Cause you know I only steps out to get dinner. Hello, Brooklyn. How you doing? you do I can't. I'm to be your
1: I never get just it. If you take it, I'm just saying, baby, just take That's our back.